From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. I'm Tammy Katzoff, and in each episode of this podcast, I talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, I spoke with Joe Laverti, class of 1999, who is a research scientist with the Geneva Foundation, a nonprofit organization that supports medical research within the U.S. military. I sat down with Dr. Laverti at the Center for Molecular Science at the United States Military Academy in West Point, New York. And as I do with all of these interviews, I began the conversation by asking how and when he became interested in his occupation. When I graduated from Muhlenberg, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I got a job working in data management in pharmaceuticals. It was good. It exposed me to things that I didn't know about. But the one thing that it did do was I figured out what I didn't want to do. So I knew I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do more. We had some scientists around us that were working in the lab. And I was very fascinated with that. I wanted to do that. To do that, that actually motivated me to go back to school. I said, okay, let me just go get a master's. And so I went and I got a master's in bioinformatics at Northeastern University. I had a fantastic opportunity there where I did a co-op at Harvard Medical School. And I had a fantastic PI. I was doing bioinformatics work for largely. But then I was given some opportunity to work in a lab and do some molecular things. And so I really connected with that. And she said, okay, well, you know, you got to go get your PhD. And I had never, ever thought of that. That was my next step. Okay, so then tell me how you got to be where we are now. I went and I got my PhD in a field that basically was kind of a continuation of some of the things that I was doing for the the Harvard Medical School professor. This was Dr. Ann Kiesling. Mm -hmm. And so one of her major research interests was investigation of uh, human embryonic stem cells. And specifically, she had a lab called the Bedford Research Foundation, which was to cure paralysis, Mm. uh, to cure spinal cord injury. And so I I really, really connected with this work. Mm. And so being in that field, it was very, it became very apparent. This was maybe like around 2004 kind of timeframe. It became apparent that you couldn't just transplant cells and that curing a spinal cord injury was a very complex problem. And so in choosing where to go for a PhD and what to do, uh, I would say that that had a big role in that. So I went for a PhD in biomedical engineering Mm -hmm. and I worked with an investigator, Dr. Brian Pfister, and he was working on this really interesting technique which combined engineering and molecular science. This was this really interesting technique where, where you can actually apply a slight force, almost like a biomechanical force. Think about an embryo expanding throughout development, just a child's limbs growing through adolescence. So there's, there's these biomechanical forces that are present in our development. No one's probably ever heard of this because, you know, it, it's still a small niche area of research. Uh-huh. But I really connected with this. I thought that was something very neat that um, it was a new way of approaching, okay, how can we repair a spinal cord. One of, the, one of the big issues in spinal cord repair is that those neurons, those axons in the spinal cord, they don't regenerate. 
those developmental cues that is, that is likely responsible behind the development of, of a meter-long spinal cord is biomechanical forces. Mm. And so this is something that I studied in PhD. And when I finished PhD, there was someone, someone at West Point who was looking for someone. They had a grant to, to continue research in nerve regeneration. And they were looking for someone, a recent grad, to do a postdoc. And so I was literally interviewed in my lab that I did my PhD. And I left from that lab and I came here. I came to West Point. And uh, this is where I've been for about five years now. Wow. So pretty much right out of your schooling. Yep. There was no delay. Wow. Okay. So can you talk a bit about the Geneva Foundation? The Geneva Foundation is largely uh, a grants and contracts administration. They're a nonprofit. They are focused to supporting research that's relevant to military medicine. And so throughout the DOD, they will support any site that may not be uh, equipped to handle large grants and contracts administration. And so they do that. They do, uh, you know, they, they submit all of the awards. They will help draft and write awards and help you with budgets. So they're really a partner going into the research. So traditional institutes, they'll have in-house grants and contracts uh, administration that will do that. But there's a lot of DOD facilities that aren't quite, they don't have that capability. And so the Geneva Foundation just fits in there perfectly and they take care of that. So let's move on and talk about your work and projects that you're working on and your work day. So first, if you can talk about just what your typical day is like here, if there is a, a typical day. The good thing about my field is... I don't think there really is a typical day. So depending upon where we are on a project, there may be some days where I'm spending, you know, a huge amount of time on the computer, looking up papers, just reading through publications, trying to, you know, build my knowledge and formulating experiments. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be other parts of my day where I'm just in the lab mm -hmm. and I'm just executing on those experiments. Mm -hmm. So it really is, I would say, a constant shift between, you know, we're sort of like applying for a grant, you're executing on the grant, I'm writing quarterly reports, we need to publish regularly, mm -hmm. you know, so that, you know, the field can benefit from, from what we're doing. Those are the kinds of things that on any given day, that's basically what I'm doing. And uh, how large or small of a team do you work with? I usually try to work with about six cadets mm -hmm. per semester. That number sort of fits because I can pair them up into teams of two. And then I usually have like three teams. And so they can put in anywhere from, let's say, when they're just first starting out, they can shadow. They're only doing maybe like two hours a week. And then the ones that really have a lot of time, they could be in the lab upwards of maybe 10 hours a week. So if I have some team, you know, and I'm trying to get the ones that are from one or two hours to 10 hours, obviously. And then if I have three groups that are at 10 hours, that could theoretically occupy a huge amount of my time to work with them. And then we also have a research technician that works with us. Mm -hmm. And during the summer, we usually take in an undergraduate a research undergraduate student to give them a good experience to get mm -hmm. to get them into research to, to propagate this cycle. Sure. And, uh, and they also end up helping out immensely as well because the cadets are gone. I don't have any cadets during the summer. Mm. 
So that's, that's an excellent time to bring in just a summer student from someplace else mm. that's looking for an experience. How many other labs do you think are, are working on these issues? The field of nerve regeneration and axon regeneration, that's certainly a larger one. Mm. I would say the specific technique that I worked on during my PhD, that was, that was a definitely a very niche thing, mm-hmm. this axon stretch growth technique. But I think it's important that people do that. For me, you know, I really connected with that technique. It was, a, you know, it was really a mix of biology, neuroscience, engineering, to a degree technology. That was a good, you know, something that I connected with. All research at this level, it just takes someone that is good and just totally immerse yourself. You're going to totally put your soul into it. And for me, the stretch growth was it. You know, I can think of like maybe a dozen investigators maybe that do that at all, this technique. Wow. Um, It is a small kind of a group of people that do that. So I assume that you pretty much know everybody who's doing it. (laughs) And I assume that they're sharing of information and however that works. Yeah. We get to see each other at, uh, at scientific conferences. Mm -hmm. We're usually reviewing each other's papers. Mm -hmm. You know, when you, when you publish a, a manuscript, you have to put who are the experts in this field that, uh, that would be equipped to, to judge this work. And so, you know, you end up seeing uh, the same names just come up a lot. That's sort of like one of a few projects going on. So one of the things that really as a scientist you're supposed to do is kind of also, you're supposed to have your niche, but then you're supposed to sort of have a couple of different things going on. So you're constantly on this cycle of you're applying for awards, you're getting awards, you're executing, and they end. And so you never quite know maybe which project is going to be perceived as something that people, they want to fund. Right. So another project sort of complements the stretch project was basically focused on coming up with methods. How can we stimulate the nerves and axons to grow? The second project, which actually was largely why I was brought here, that is more of a, once you have axons growing, how do you direct them where to grow? And so that's the field of axonal guidance and connectivity. You could consider that an entirely separate field. I mean, it's part of the, the overall equation in trying to heal someone that has a nerve injury or even a spinal cord injury or even a brain injury. Mm. That's kind of another niche of researchers that will study that. So for me, I was brought here on a grant that was focused on developing these implantable scaffolds that you could implant in the body that once you can encourage or once you have regeneration, you can direct it towards where it needs to go. Oh, wow. What are these made of? (laughs) So, yeah. So, so they can be made of many, many different materials. The ones we, we work with here are just type one collagen. So that gets isolated from cowhide. There's commercial vendors that you can buy it from. Other investigators, they'll isolate it just from lab animals and things like that. It's pretty generally available. Mm -hmm. And it's it's one of the most abundant proteins in the body, collagen. It makes sense to to implant that. You've been here a few years now. Um, What major or minor changes have you seen in the way that your work gets done? In terms of writing grants and getting funded to do the work 
I would say that the rigor has gone up. Mm. The expectations of granting institutes. So one of the granting institutes that, that funded us was the, the uh, CDMRP, Congressionally Directed Medical Research Program. National Institutes of Health is another funding agency, National Science Foundation. And I would say the rigor of all of these institutes has gone up because mm. there's many, many researchers and uh, everybody competes mm-hmm. and wants to be awarded these grants. They have a limited pocket of money. And so they have right. to figure out who should get this money to do the work. And so in writing the grants and in basically everything you do and conducting the research and reporting on it, I would say the rigor has really gone up. Today, I think there's, you know, you would have a hard time just proposing to develop a nerve conduit because people have already done that. Whereas maybe five or 10 years ago, you could propose just to do that because Maybe there weren't so many nerve conduits and they didn't work that well. But now there are a lot of nerve conduits. And so you can't just propose to do that. They want sort of like combinatorial. So you're going to maybe use a nerve conduit. You're going to do some sort of either an animal study or a clinical study. And you're going you're gonna to evaluate almost every metric that you can evaluate once you're done doing that study. So in terms of functional recovery... Can you make a lab animal walk again? How well can it walk? What's the speed? Sensory feedback, you know, is a huge thing in determining how well functional recovery really is. You have Mm -hmm. to have a good sensory feedback. And so they want these combinatorial proposals and research efforts that really address every aspect of, of clinical relevance. And I would say that is a, that's a big trend that I've seen that's, that's changed over the years. Mm. And how do you deal with it? <laughs> what have you had so, to do to change, in other words, if anything, how, how well, you go about it? So I think there's an ever-increasing push to become an expert in something that the field can, can rely on you for that thing. Mm. And then partner with experts in things that you're, you are not the expert in. So, for example, if I made the very best nerve conduit or I came up with the best method of stimulating nerve growth, then that would be my contribution on that proposal. And, you know, for example, I am not a clinician. I don't work extensively with animals here. We don't we don't work with animals at, at West Point. So I would partner then with the best expert that. I could find the, the expert that where it made the most sense that they can connect with what I'm doing. Mm. They're ideally situated and suited to test and interface with what I'm doing. And so the granting agencies really expect you, you know, I, I think it's really an expectation of the field now. You know, I even get asked to review grants and I'm, this is, this is what I'll, I'll judge others on too. Right. This is just the trend. We really want to link the people that are doing the, the very best people that have the very best success and link those people together. And so that has become the expectation. And that's what people are doing uh, in order to be successful in getting funding and staying in there and, and doing research and doing research that really matters and that will help people. So aside from funding, uh, are there any other challenges that you face personally doing your job? I would say for me, I have a very young family. So I have three young children at home. 
the immediate thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is just how do you try to manage time? Because that's one thing that it's almost like with research, you can never put in enough, right? There's, there's always something to do. I think managing that has been a little bit of a challenge mm. for me. It's easy, you know, to just say, okay, we're, I'm just going to stay a little bit later or come in a little bit earlier. And then it's like, you know, I kind of have to think, all right, well, do I want to be home? And do you, where, where do you want to spend your time? And so um, that's certainly one challenge. Mm. There's, there's numerous challenges, you know, that will come up. And I think a lot of them in research, you just have to look at them as logistical challenges. I think research in itself, it is a challenge, right? You're, you're, try, you're trying to identify a challenge, something that we don't know how to do today. And, you're, you know, you're trying to figure out methods of, of surmounting challenges. So it's almost like, I think that almost kind of is the business. I don't know how much I could, you know, you could then say, uh, you know, well, I don't want that challenge. You know, there, <laughs> right. there, you know, there's certain challenges you may, you may be willing to take on more than others. But I think that's, that's generally what we do in, 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 this, in the field. Mm-hmm. What do you like most about your job? I think it's tremendously rewarding to be in the lab and do virtually anything you want that no one before has ever done. And you'll be the first one to see what happens Mm. as a result of that. It's very rewarding to have that job. Sure. The fact that that then that idea and that result could go on to help people I think it's just a very privileged position to be in. And finally, um, if someone was just starting out in their career or, or planning to step into their journey to eventually be able to do what you're doing now, what advice would you give that person? I would say go after what's in your heart. Go after something, some problem, something that you just feel compelled that if you're interested in science, if you're interested in research, really try and identify and connect with something that you feel like you're going to have a lot of motivation to do that because it's a lot of hours. It's a lot of time. It takes a lot of dedication. If you have that drive to do that, I would say that's what it really takes. And I would also add that say you just, you like the idea of research, but you just, maybe you don't have that particular drive for any one specific thing. I would say go out and just find researchers, do Google searches and identify people that are, that would be convenient, that are local, that you connect with and send them a message and ask to connect with them. Just see what they do, shadow them for a day, or even just, you know, ask some questions through email because, uh, I've really yet to find anyone, uh, any doctor or Someone, you know, that is a professional doing research that doesn't want to help someone younger to get into the field and Mm. do it. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you're just at the point where you're like, oh, research, this is just so fascinating. And and you really identify with where that's going, then just go out and just start talking to people and ask people, can I be in your lab? Can I just shadow the students in your lab? You'll know right away the things that that you like and the things that you don't like. And I think you could probably use that to try and figure out as a starting point where, where you belong. 
This episode of 2400 Shoe was produced by me, Tammy Katzoff, Associate Director of the Muhlenberg College Career Center. It was recorded on location by Paul Kremposky and engineered by Morgan Wolper at the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band. <laughs>